Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to this episode of the History Workshop podcast, bringing radical history into dialogue with the present. I'm Ellie Robson. In today's episode, we hear from historians and activists brought together to discuss the Labour Party and momentum. This conversation took place in January 2018 as part of History Acts. Organisers Stefan Blaney and Guy Beckett host History Acts sessions about once a month at Birkbeck College in London. They aim to encourage the exchange of ideas and experiences between radical historians and contemporary activists, to find new ways for academics to learn from activists and to see what expertise and institutional resources historians can use to provide active solidarity. History Acts is developed in conjunction with the Raphael Samuel History Centre, which is also a partner of History Workshop. You can find out more about History Acts at www.historyacts.org. In this episode, a panel of two historians and two activists discuss the left in government as the Labour Party charts a new direction under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, supported in part by the grassroots organisation Momentum. We will first hear from Beth Foster-Ogg, a Labour activist and Momentum training organiser, We'll then hear from Michael Walker, a Labour activist and contributor to Navarra Media. Our third speaker is John Callahan, Professor of Politics and Contemporary History at the University of Salford. Finally, we hear from historian Charlotte Riley, a lecturer in 20th century British history at the University of Southampton. So first, Beth Foster-Ogg, a Labour activist. So my name is Beth and I am Momentum's training organiser. So, first of all, just a bit about momentum. So, what's happened in the last two years, the main things are basically the general election and also a lot of success in for the left within the Labour Party. So, momentum's role during the general election was basically in mobilising activists on the ground and also in uh, communicating with voters through social media. So, we had a massive social media reach. One in four UK Facebook users saw one of our videos during the general election, which is more than both the Labour Party and the Tories' social media reaches put together. And most of our content was based on educating people about some of the Tory and Labour policies, but it was done in a very personal and funny or entertaining way. And then our other main part of our kind of what we were doing was mobilising activists to get out onto the streets and have conversations with voters. So we were mobilising hundreds of thousand people and the kind of key aspects of how we were doing that is by firstly making information about how to get involved as accessible as humanly possible. So we had things like My Nearest Marginal where people could type in their postcode and find out where to go and how they could get a lift and how they could get there uh, to go out and campaign and also by communicating with people. So if you were in a marginal just before a Saturday of campaigning, you would normally get a phone call, a text and an email from us. And it was all very personal and focused on one particular action that we wanted them to do. And those are two things that are uh, kind of very key to what I'm going to talk about in, in going on in the future. And then the other thing we did was training. So we were training people about how to persuade voters 
how to you know talk about Labour Party policy in the manifesto, how to deal with difficult questions, because that's something that the Labour Party never has really done before, which is tell people how to actually have a conversation with a voter about politics. And then in the last year also we've had massive success uh, within the Labour Party, so basically since Blair, the Labour Party conference has been a room full of people in suits, even though it's supposed to be you know the pinnacle of democracy in the Labour Party, it's three days of speeches from members of parliament and mayors and not much actual conversation, debate or democracy. This year we saw a massive shift. Momentum had 80% of the delegates. We had a lot more actual debate and conversation and voting and questioning and holding people to account. And it was a real change in kind of culture and feeling. So we had the World Transformed alongside it, which was a kind of festival of ideas, etc. So those are kind of the changes that we've seen in the last year, but what I kind of wanted to talk about is from those learnings in the last year, what we now believe as momentum we need to do in the next five years so that when the election happens, if it happens in five years, we are ready to take power and we will win. So I think the main thing for us is that when we go into government, it's going to be a new kind of government, that what's changing is that it's not just about this parliamentary Labour Party, it's about a movement of people, it's about communities and it's about democracy on the ground. So our focus for the next five years is really around organising our activists to actually do community-based campaigning. And lots of people have asked what we mean by community organising. I think the focus for us is around <coughs> training and teaching and allowing people to build systemic links with people in their local communities, around common issues, issue-based campaigning and issue-based community work to train and allow people to get involved in actual campaigns that have small wins, so whether that's against like a corporate company or a council that's doing something, giving people the tools to be able to organise community-based campaigns across a broad spectrum of people and win those campaigns, and also around uh, recruiting people to unions. And then the third part is around offering solidarity and support support to those who've been affected by austerity. So the kind of things we're starting to do are the Pitch House Cinema Strike, which was offering solidarity and support and recruiting people from Pitch House Cinemas to fight for a rise in wages so they would have the living wage. We've had uh, lots of our momentum groups have set up food clubs. So this is a kind of subscription of £3 a week for around £30 or £40 worth of food. So places like Lancaster have got people in their community paying £3 and being able to have meals with their community throughout the week. So this is really supporting you know, families who are struggling and relying on food banks. And then also doing things like in Newcastle we have our group are being advocates in tribunals for people who are fighting cases to do with benefits. And we're starting to do a lot more work with getting young people into unions. So if some of you might know about the McStrike campaign, which was around getting young people to go on strike in McDonald's to get a pay rise because they are paid absolutely abysmally. And that was very successful. They had the biggest pay rise in 10 years for McDonald's workers, but that's massively expanding because that was only in a couple of branches. So soon you're going to see a lot more uh, strike action in McDonald's. So these are the kind of activities that we want our activists and our movement to start doing to really start recruiting people ac across issues that are affecting them to get involved in their communities and get involved in campaigns. So the idea is that over the next five years we'll be able to create this movement 
that will be prepared to actually, when we have an election, will have done the groundwork to be able to persuade people that Labour is the answer. So a big part of what we're also doing is around changing the Labour Party. Something that I think was mi missing from the manifesto was around bringing democracy and participation into our communities and into our society. So Jeremy Corbyn has always spoken about making society more participatory, getting people involved, you know, democratising public services, decentralising media, making housing corporations, all of these kind of things. They're about getting people more involved in the things that happen to them and the services that they use. And that's something that was missing from the manifesto, but I think it's really crucial in our work that we're doing now in Democratising the Labour Party that we actually have struggled a lot in getting people involved, even when they're already Labour Party members. You know, there's a lot of steps to take to actually get people to get involved in decision-making and participate in processes. And so we need to work out how we can do that best. You know, if you're a Labour Party member, you know that it's a very bureaucratic and sometimes very boring <laughs> party. So, you know, some of the aims over the next five years are about, firstly, making it reasonable and common to hold our elected representatives to account. So what's happened recently in Haringey with reselection of local councillors, it's an amazing display of Labour Party members being able to have a democratic say that actually has an impact on the ground. So for those of you who don't know what happened, there is a local housing development happening in Haringey and locally it's very you know much agreed upon that this would be extremely damaging to the local community. There isn't any, there's something like 10% affordable housing and the company that's running the housing development have gone back on lots of promises on affordable housing previously. So what happened recently is during the reselection process lots of the councillors who support this redevelopment weren't reselected and it caused a lot of chaos because everyone was like momentum are deselecting all these councillors but actually what what was happening was there's a real problem on the ground affecting local people Labour Party members were able through the democratic processes that we've worked hard to kind of make clearer and more transparent and get people involved in to say actually no you know what if you're going to have this impact on our local community we don't want you to be our councillor so we're going to select someone else so it's a real show of the democracy that we hope to have throughout the party you know from councillors to MPs so choosing candidates and holding them responsible is a really important part of the next five years bringing more members into the process of policy making so we currently have the Labour Party Democracy Review going on, which is allowing members to put forward ways in which we could restructure the party and do things to, to, to change it. So quickly, some of the problems I envisage, which would be interesting to hear your views on, about the Labour Party in government are about being prevented from doing things that we want to do. So lots of people have spoken about the potential issues of Whitehall stopping, you know, using bureaucracy to stop lots of things happening, the establishment doing things to prevent... Jeremy's government from being able to carry out their plans and being like pressured to pitulate on big issues like corporation tax, those kind of things that could cause us lots of problems. One solution I discussed with my colleagues earlier was just trying to do as many things as possible in six months <laughs> and pretending you only have six months and doing everything, but I don't know uh, what impact that would have. So it'd be really interesting to hear about how we would deal with those problems and maybe Michael has some thoughts on that. Now we are going to hear from another Labour activist, Michael Walker. I'm going to talk about Labour in government and what we might want to try and work out before we get there. So I want to talk about the different policy areas and also what Labour's strategy would have to be to implement them. I don't have any role in the formation of Labour Party policy, but I write about it or comment on it. So in terms of 
economics. So it seems clear at this point that Labour have quite successfully built a fairly broad coalition which is in favour of rolling back some of neoliberalism and raising taxes, reversing privatisations, things which there's actually quite a lot of technocratic, not consensus for, but a lot of support for those policies across society. So the IMF is now saying that austerity has failed. So to be an anti-austerity party is a position that might not necessarily invoke massive opposition from the deep state. So I suppose the question there is, what do we want to do beyond rolling back neoliberalism? And do we want to go further than social democracy? Or would the kind of social democracy that we had before neoliberalism work again? Would we end up with 1979 again? So for the historians, how do we reverse neoliberalism without going back to the late 70s? I mean, I know that a lot has changed, but that, that would be for you to tell me. When we're implementing those policies, what sort of resistance will you get? Uh, so John McDonnell talked at The World Transformed about wargaming in case there's some sort of run on the pound. Will that be the case? Uh, if all we're doing is reversing some of the now dysfunctional neoliberal policies that have seen the economy stagnate, I'm not sure that will happen. I mean, increasing taxes and investing in the North isn't necessarily going to cause a capital strike, but maybe the insecurity that people have of someone like Corbyn and McDonald being in charge of the economy will provoke some kind of political capital strike. So even though the economic policies that are happening at that point in time won't be particularly threatening, just the idea of that government being a success will be too much for international finance to countenance. Uh, how that would be resisted if it happened would be a question. Another question would be beyond sort of moving to a sort of German-style capitalism which is less free market and obscene and unequal than our Anglo-Saxon version, if you wanted to do something like the Swedish Meidner plan, where you end up with <coughs> workers co-owning businesses, is that when you'd start to see businesses really come out and have a united establishment opposition to Corbyn and a socialist left programme? Which, to be honest, I don't think we've seen that much yet because for so long they were very complacent. So you haven't seen business unite against Corbyn, even in the way that they came and united against Brexit because they didn't see it as a real possibility. So we've, that, we've, we've yet to find that out. Uh, and the role of the unions will be up for debate. Is it going to be a case of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, from what they've said so far, will be quite prone, I think, to give the unions whatever they want, um, which I'm quite prone to as well. But that sort of comes with its own problems uh, in government. So what's that relationship going to look like? In terms of examples to look at, I mean, I'm not a historian, so the example that most people of my age on the left look at is Syriza, where they had a sort of quite ambitious socialist programme that was destroyed by the EU. It seems to me that we're in quite a different situation and that no one could really have us over a barrel in the same way that the EU had Greece over a barrel. But again, I'm not that sure about that. I don't know the answer there. In terms of foreign policy, that might even be the most contentious and difficult issue for a Corbyn government because whilst Corbyn and McDonnell have a very strong anti-imperialist pedigree, obviously the Labour Party doesn't. So to my knowledge we've never seen what happens when you get a government that takes charge of the British state and tries to extricate, is that the word? You take us out of <laughs> uh, imperial interventions across the world. Whether we want to look at some sort of unaligned policy, again a bit like the Scandinavians in the 70s, might be very interesting. It's probably on foreign policy that Corbyn has been the least 
bowled on in a way in that there's been no real breaks with the consensus in the same way that happened with nationalisation and austerity etc. I think because potentially quite reasonably they've wanted to change the subject because they don't see that as the big winning issue of the day. So what that's going to look like, especially with a party that definitely doesn't share his pedigree. So if there were a move to withdraw Labour from, for example, NATO, I imagine if Corbyn entered government with a PLP, a parliamentary Labour Party that looks like anything that it looks like right now, that would be the fall of that government because they would form a cross-party alliance with Tories who wanted to stay in, in NATO. I'm sure that would happen. So what foreign policy you can build in the confines of the Labour Party as it currently exists, if we don't manage to radically transform it, which I'd hope we'd do, but that might be difficult. I think his UN speech gave like a really good and ambitious outline of what Corbyn foreign policy might look like. So he talked a lot about the need to have transnational regulation of international corporations and hold them up to standards of human rights. And that sort of control over corporations isn't something I've heard from a Labour leader in a long time, so that could be very significant. And I suppose one of the most controversial issues for the Labour Party up to now, with its left-wing activist base, has been in terms of home affairs policy or security. How does a Corbyn government relate to the police? That was the big controversy in the general election, which is Corbyn's Labour agreed to increase the police's funding. Some people in the base weren't happy about that. In terms of the resistance that this will all meet, so we've got to work out what policies we want, but then also how do you make that happen? The extent to which there's a deep state that will oppose these policies, again, I think is kind of unknown. Um, I imagine that civil servants wouldn't really mind renationalising the railways. I imagine that civil servants wouldn't really mind investing in the north. I'm not sure how happy civil servants would be with a policy which nationalised other industries, potentially, or which gave workers more power in those other industries. I'm not sure how happy civil servants or the military establishment would be with any policy that radically transformed Britain's positioning in the world vis-a-vis -vis its allies. And again, the issue of international finance and how much that will restrict what we can do. In terms of strategy to insulate a Corbyn's government from that opposition, if it does arise, that will presumably be about having a mobilised and activated citizenship, which is the kind of thing Beth is talking about but which we also know is quite difficult to maintain when you have a left government in power. So Syriza again kind of struggled with that. It was quite unforgivably, I thought actually, I listened to an interview with their current finance minister, the one that replaced Barry Fakis, and he was asked by the interviewer what he felt about them basically having gone towards an illiberal policy. And he said, well, what could we do? The social movements, they weren't strong enough. Uh, which seemed a bit of an abandonment of responsibility, but I don't see that happening with Corbyn and McDonald, but it's an interesting question. Also, to reproduce that movement, cadre building. So, I mean, I think at the po position we're in now, the left, as it's currently constituted, hasn't thought very much at all about state power, what it's going to look like, what challenges you'll face, what economic policy we actually want, what security policy you actually want. So, building up a big section of society who can engage with those questions. Uh, something like what the trade union movement used to be able to do but which no longer 
exist to the same extent that it did in the 1970s, when obviously it was still defeated, so it needs to be even stronger than that. And whether that will happen through the Labour Party itself, which is probably the most vibrant organisation I know of in the UK right now, or whether that will happen through a reinvigorated union movement or something else, is all up for debate. Our next speaker is John Callaghan, a historian. Well, the first thing I think we probably all recognise is that what you would call neoliberalism is clearly dysfunctional. You know, it, it simply doesn't work in so many different ways. And I think that would be recognised beyond the circles of you know, those of us who call ourselves socialists. It was recognised by mainstream economists, for example, when Marshall wrote Principles of uh, Economics in 1890. He was already talking then about the way in which levels of inequality become dysfunctional from a purely economic point of view. As we see now with, the, with those who are immensely wealthy, their contribution in terms of stimulating demand, creating investment in, in the economy is very small, actually. And at the other extreme, you have lots of people on the, in such low incomes that the whole economy is dragged down by that, by that massive inequality. And that kind of dysfunction operates in lots of different ways. So I think any government that's coming in to address some of these issues, privatised railways that don't work, for example, if there's a serious plan to do something to make the railways work more efficiently, I don't see why there would be any objection from civil service bureaucrats, as, as you indicated. And, and I think that applies right across the board. In fact, that's one of the problems that a Labour government, any Labour government, will have. The backlog of things that need to be done is massive. Everywhere you look, if you travel up to the north of England, and I hope that some of you do that, you'll see that some of those towns and, and cities up there well, we're totally unscathed after 64 financial quarters of economic growth from 1992 to 2008. A place like Wolverhampton had a Costa Coffee and a Starbucks, but nothing else had changed as far as the city centre was concerned. There was the same number of empty derelict buildings and industrial archaeology at the end of that process, at the end of those 16 years of economic growth, as there was at the beginning. And of course, since then, we've had 10 years of austerity. So the backlog of stuff that needs doing is absolutely massive. And there's no way that any government is going to do that in four or five years' time. They can make a start on that. And let's, look, let's be honest here as well that even if they made the most serious start on it, it would be completely inglorious, in the sense that most ordinary voters wouldn't see much difference for years. And you have to remember, what we call in neoliberalism, or the unravelling of what was the old social democratic consensus, has been going on for 47 years. It's nearly half a century. In fact, you could even say that the Wilson government was beset by that. When Wilson was talking about the gnomes of Zurich, he was perhaps actually alluding to something which he didn't fully comprehend, nobody did, but it was the beginning of what is now called globalisation and the ability of money to move around very quickly and the money in question not to be involved in investment in real jobs, but speculative finance. So for a process like this to have gone on for so long, unravelling so much of what was part of that so-called social democratic consensus, it's hardly surprising that now we're faced with really, really big problems 
And we're also, I think, this is, seems to me, this is why I'm speaking as the historian, but maybe this is just a function of getting older. Things seem more uncertain now for the immediate future than at any time that I can think of in the past. You know, obviously, one doesn't know what's happening in the future. But with the Brexit issue, with the state of the British economy being as weak as it is already, you know, prior to us actually leaving the European Union, my hunch is it can only be that things will soon be worse than they are now. So that means that the Labour government, in all likelihood, leaving aside capitalists who decide to uh, run scared and get the money out of the country if a Corbyn government is formed, which I don't think would be a particular problem, actually, because of all this dysfunctionality that we already have. It's not as if we've got what is now a really great example of a booming capitalist economy. We haven't. And I think the other thing that we have to acknowledge as well is that we're not going to be able to import into, onto these shores what appears to be a more functioning model like German capitalism. You can't simply bring over the best of that without causing a major cultural change in this country. I mean, take an obvious example. We have employers who don't invest in training. That's not a new thing. That's been going on for decades. Whereas the Germans have had a long history, haven't they, of the employers and the state and, and indeed organised labour taking responsibility for long-term investment. The banks there go in for long-term industrial investment, which they don't in this country. So we're not going to be able to simply say, well, that, that works, let's have some of that. It seems to me that the most we could expect from a Corbyn government is that in that long list of things you mentioned, it has some idea of priorities beyond repairing all those things I've already referred to that have been damaged. But it has some priorities that might lead to some institutional structural changes that will stick and that won't be blown away by the next Tory government. You can find out what Corbyn stands for by reading books and pamphlets and so on. But if you put yourself in the position of the vast majority of the population who don't do that, then I would question how many of the uh, voters actually have a real idea of what a future Labour government would do. Nationalisation, renationalisation of railways is probably one of the things that has got through, but I suspect a lot of the other stuff hasn't. My first memory of a surge like the Corbyn surge was when I was taken to Bellevue in Manchester by my father when I was 12 to see Harold Wilson arriving to talk to um, a Labour rally. He was arriving by helicopter, so it was something special. Wilson was regarded as a real man of the left. There were Marxists who were saying this in 63. And the, the programme that Wilson had was regarded as a very radical programme, wasn't it? There was going to be a new Department of Economic Affairs, the Treasury and Finance would be relegated, there'd be all this investment in industry, and of course it didn't happen. Second time round was with the Benite movement in the 70s. And again, it's easy to forget that the alternative economic strategy actually dominated Labour Party discussion for a decade and came to naught. And of course, we can argue about why that was the case, but it's significant that some of the people associated with it themselves came to the conclusion 
by the early 80s that it was redundant, that times had changed and that it was no longer possible. Partly, of course, because of the Thatcher-engineered recession of 80-81, which did away with about 25% of the manufacturing industry that the alternative economic strategy was supposed to be you know, addressing. That's another reason, I think, to be cautious now. Because of what I said about the greater uncertainty, I think, of the immediate future as far as this economy is concerned, because of the Brexit problem, we have to be, I think, quite modest in what we could expect the Labour government to achieve. i just say one thing about the city. Many of you would have been impressed by Margaret Hodge's interrogation of, was it Google, Amazon, some of those big companies that pay no taxation, as chair of the Public Accounts Commission. Either she is a wonderful actor, or she <coughs> has paid no attention to what's been going on for decades. You know, I mention that only because Labour's record where the city's concerned is being truly appalling. I'll remind you that Tony Blair, when he was uh, leader of Labour in opposition, promised to do something about the city, promised to introduce regulations, and of course we saw nothing of the sort. If anything, there became, under Blair and Brown, a celebration of the city as the best example of dynamic, globalised capitalism. You know, lifting the whole UK economy up. That was the idea. Self-regulating, knows what it's doing and so on. I have to be sceptical when I hear these suggestions that a Corbyn government would be able to address issues like this. You know, tax havens, offshore financial activities that we're supposed to regulate but nobody actually regulates. I'd like to see more detail about that, precisely how they propose to do it. Finally, historian Charlotte Riley. I guess I've just got some, some general things to say about Labour and its own history and the way that Labour thinks about history and, and the kind of role of the past in the Labour Party's image of itself. Um, and then I'll try and maybe think about the answers to some of these questions. I'm a terrible historian to ask to do this because I feel really strongly that historians shouldn't make predictions. So I think I find Labour's understanding of its own past really compelling and I think Labour as a party is historically rooted in the way that it and its members think about its own identity and it's kind of crafted an, an ethical identity based at least partly on this idea of having a historic consistency. There's this idea of principles at the heart of the Labour Party which are historically rooted, um, not just in the Labour Party itself but into the 19th century, into kind of the Labour movement more broadly. Um, it, it's really notable that Labour has quite a long section on its website about its own history. The Conservatives have no, no mention of their history at all. There is not a section on the Conservative Party website at all that deals with its past. In asking these kinds of questions about how things might happen in the future and thinking about what Labour has historically done in government. These are also questions more generally about how Labour sees itself, how it kind of understands its motivations and its ethical centre, and its sense of itself as kind of motivated by staying true to a sort of historic identity. You know, a lot of the moments of anxiety or conflict within the Labour Party come when certain groups think that that historic identity is being chipped away at or is being lost. So Clause 4 is an obvious example, but there are just as many people on the right of the Labour Party who feel that for example, you know, the left of the Labour Party is moving Labour into historical irrelevancy. That, you know, that kind of language is used quite a lot. So the idea of history as being important to the party in and of itself 
I find quite compelling. The idea of how would you have a Labour Party that was actually effective in government, I think historically the role of the media is really important and shouldn't be underplayed. Historically, moments when Labour has had success have been moments where they've been able to win over not just kind of the generally supportive media, but also wider media moments. You know, not just in 1997 when the sun very briefly comes out for, for Blair's Labour, but more generally. This, this idea that actually you know, ordinary people maybe know about rail nationalisation as an issue that Labour care about, but a lot of ordinary people didn't know more generally what Corbyn's policies were. And so their ideas about Corbyn were very shaped until the election campaign by this kind of very pantomime communist <laughs> image of, of Corbyn in the tabloid press. Kind of thinking about how the media, not just the print media, but media more generally, can support the Labour Party in winning over broad base of popular support, which would then enable these kind of wider changes, or would at least make these wider, cha wider changes more, you know, more likely to happen if, if or when Labour gets into government. I think also the idea, uh, Beth was talking about a lot about community activism and community engagement, and I think in a way historically the Labour Party has always been almost akin to a kind of grassroots movement more than other political parties have been. And again, that's been part of its own political identity, that Labour is something that ordinary people care about, and that's sometimes been a weakness as well as a strength, because it has, for example, sometimes made it quite hard to have a very strong, consistent message, because you've got lots of people who engage with and interact with Labour on different levels and from different perspectives. But this kind of community organising clearly has been really effective. And this kind of grassroots community organising from the left of the Labour Party has been effective even, so not just in Haringey about kind of reselecting Labour councillors who supported housing development, but in Newham, for example, things like the E15 mums who are doing a kind of housing activism against a Labour mayor and a Labour, not necessarily against a Labour MP, but in a Labour constituency with a Labour council, there's still this kind of very active grassroots movement. And I think the idea of being able to not just encourage community work, but this sort of sense of training people in order to, you know, how do you talk about the manifesto, how do you respond to negative questions on the doorstep, this sort of thing, obviously seems like it's working. But it, it's also about kind of, I don't know, adapting to a different sense of what it means to be politi politically active, I guess, the idea that these community groups are just as legitimate forms of engagement with the Labour Party as going to constituency meetings. And in a way, that's a very modern, Corbynite new idea, but that's also a very old idea, that, that community activism is part of people's day-to-day -day political lived experience. It's clearly kind of drawing on historical ideas. The kind of constant... The references to community solidarity and unions seems to me very clear evidence of a sort of transnational influence on Labour as well. It's partly its own history, but it's also this broader, you know, you kind of mentioned different uh, kind of left in, in Europe, but also in America, in Latin America, in the Global South more generally. Like, th this sort of sense of connectedness and the idea of kind of mobilising ordinary people's desires and concerns is clearly kind of a, a transnational movement. I think the other thing I wanted to say is uh, specifically this idea about unions so you ask, if we try to return to the social democracy that we had before, how would we not end up in, in 1979? And, and obviously one of the big differences is the, is the much lower union membership that we have in Britain today. And I think this kind of maps onto something, I don't know, a kind of connected point, which is that for a long time in Britain, in both kind of mainstream political party literature 
and, and kind of conversations, but also in the media more generally, there has been this very, very narrow sense of what it means to be working class in Britain. And I think it has been very kind of very clearly defined by a particular group of people. And what's happened is that increasingly working class and white working class has, have been seen as being essentially the same thing. That when people say working class, they have a particular image in mind. And what they're thinking about is a kind of post-industrial, probably urban, white, <coughs> probably racist group. Right? And this group is invoked all of the time to talk about particular policy concerns. It's, it was invoked a lot during the Brexit campaign. There was this idea of the working class and what the working class wants. And this idea of the working class was very kind of rigid and fixed and specific. And it completely ignored what actual working class communities want. It completely ignored the existence of people of colour within the working class. It largely ignored women's voices within the working class. And it, it was really problematic for a lot of reasons, but it also kind of flattened debate about political identity in Britain because it ends up kind of breaking people into these very specific categories which are then really difficult to understand from an analytical perspective because they don't, you know, that, that's not kind of the reality of what it means to be working class in Britain today. I mean, just like in the context of Brexit, for example, the idea of the working class broadly supporting Brexit, which is, you know, not true, for example, in Newham, which was did not vote uh, leave, voted remain, but is also not this kind of white working class. It, it doesn't fit into this kind of white working class image that pe people might kind of try to conjure. And then I guess part of what I work on is uh, the Labour Party's aid policies. And it's absolutely right to point out that Labour has been steeped in empire throughout its history. The Labour Party, you know, Attlee um, and Wilson and various different people in the Labour Party's hierarchy have had kind of key relationships with, with empire. The Fabians and empire obviously had very kind of complicated relationship. One of the ways in which Labour has, on the face of it, kind of differentiated its foreign policy from the Conservatives historically has been through the question of aid. Labour has always been more supportive of aid policies. Labour has always seen aid policies as being something to be delivered outside of the Foreign Office. So it's always Labour who tries to make independent aid departments and the Conservatives, until 2010, the Conservatives always tried to roll them back up and put them back into Foreign Office. And it would be interesting to see what a Corbyn government would do in terms of aid because on one hand aid policies can clearly be seen as kind of they can be cast by the left of a Labour Party as being extremely redistributive as being about global justice of being even kind of you know sitting within a kind of reparations narrative but on the other hand clearly a lot of the time aid is about neo-colonial activism in developing world economies and kind of bring up Swedish kind of foreign policy model just made me think you know Sweden has for a long time used aid very specifically to try to enact foreign policy goals around the world that's been you know CEDA is really really powerful in the international aid community so if a Corbyn Labour government took Scandinavia as a model for foreign policy I wonder what that would actually say for what it was doing because I think it might be a lot more interventionist Thank you for listening to History Acts, Labour and Momentum, the Left in Government. Our thanks again to Stefan Blaney and Guy Beckett for their work organising History Acts. To find out about future sessions and join the conversation, visit www.historyacts.org. You can follow the History Workshop podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud. And you can find out more about us at www.historyworkshop.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at HistoryWO. Until next time.